and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. This is episode 93, Pop Goes the V-Boy, and I am Elsa. And I'm Chris, and we're ready to talk to you about Swedish history. If you're listening on the release date, then we hope you have a lovely last day of 2023. And if you're listening afterwards, then we just have to say Happy New Year and welcome to 2024. And if you're listening to this way afterwards, then a happy 2025 or 2026 or maybe even 2027 and beyond. Well, there are people discovering the podcast right now and they're listening to episode one sort of four years after we released the first one. So that's definitely possible. Whoever you are and whenever this is, hello and thank you for being with us. We're actually looking forward to celebrating our fourth podcast birthday very soon in uh, January of 2024. And we're coming up to 100 episodes too. So probably not for the anniversary, but maybe for the 100th episode. We were talking the other day about maybe doing something a bit cool to celebrate that. So um, we'll get back to you about that. But before we start the episode in exactly the same way as the last episode, aka more wars with Russia, we need to rush into our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, this time it is mycket vill ha mer, which means a lot wants more. Pretty straightforward phrase this time because that is exactly what it means. Probably needs an extra word or something, but yeah, it means that a person who already has a lot could be money, fame, Lego, uh, you name it, they likely want more. And it's used to indicate greed or excessiveness in general. It's a quite common phrase in Swedish, and it's often said sort of matter-of-factly, like it is a truth. So you could say she already had two sports cars, but now she's bought a third, because you know what it's like. Mycket vill ha mer. A lot wants more. Yeah, so it's it's weird because you yeah, it's it doesn't make any sense sort of grammatically, but it's just how the phrase is put on. But I think it makes a lot of sense in life. Yeah, very much true. Someone else who has a lot but wants more is Ivan the Third of Russia. And we saw how in the last episode he became the new sort of ruler of Russia and Novgorod when he conquered Novgorod uh, as ruler of Muscovy or Moscow and uh, from now on we're talking about the Russians but he's not just happy with uh, what he has and he's also getting annoyed at all of these Swedish fortifications that are popping up on the border and we also saw how Eric Axelsson Tot first annoyed him in the 1480s by turning the wooden castle of Nislot into a stone castle which is obviously a lot better. Saying New Slot Castle, by the way, is a bit like saying Chai Tea. You're saying New Castle Castle. Slot is the Swedish word for castle or palace. So New Slot just means New Castle. Just to confuse things even further, Nee Slot is sometimes referred to as Olaf's boy, which is uh, Saint Olaf's fortress. And sometimes if people want to distinguish between just the castle and the town that then grows up around it, which is still there to this day, it's called Nee Slot in Swedish, Savon Linna in Finnish, and they call the town Nee Slot and the castle Olaf's boy. So it's uh, Olaf's castle in Newcastle. <laughs> Which is just, uh, yeah. Oh, Newcastle, yeah. So that's, we have a place called that in England. 
it took you until now no, to make that just, connection. No, it's because we don't have the gap between the word. It's not called new. Oh, well, they don't in the Swedish either. <laughs> yeah, that's dumb. You can literally hear my brain sort of like the, I, the cogs whirring. I have to just re- reiterate this to the listeners because they can't see your face. There's literally a light bulb that went off <laughs> over Chris's head as he realized that there is a town in England called Newcastle. You watched a football game yesterday that involved the team Newcastle. Oh, and they won. Oh, grown. Um, nice Chinatown right next to the stadium there, by the way. I've only passed through Newcastle on the train. I've never gotten off and seen the town, unfortunately. Anywho, yeah, back to EAT, or Eric Auxus and Tot, uh, because before he died in the last episode that we were talking about, he turned a knee slot into this stone castle. And we saw how there were some skirmishes and fighting back and forth that didn't really lead to much. And then they sort of got a semi-permanent peace, which lasted all the way up until 1495, which we saw at the end of the last episode, which was when the Russians attacked Finland and uh, started to siege both V-Boy Castle and... Newcastle. And the Russians were emboldened by the fact that they'd agreed a treaty with King Hans down in Denmark where he was sort of stabbing his Kalmar Union partners in the back uh, because he said, yeah, okay, if you let us uh, us Danes have new trading rights in places like Novgorod, we'll let you just eat up a bit of Finland and uh, change the border there. And this obviously annoyed the Swedes. And so Sten Stura, still regent of Sweden, he rallied his forces and tried to go and relieve the Swedish forces out east, and he even uh, dragged out the banner of St. Eric from Uppsala Cathedral to give a little boost to his men, which annoyed the archbishop there. And down in Rome, his buddy, Hemming Gad, convinced the Pope to give his blessing to this new Swedish crusade, and uh, things seemed to be all set for a big showdown. But then the Swedish weather comes into play, because over Christmas, Stensture and his fleet have to stop off on Åland because of ice and storms in late November, and by Christmas he has only made it just over the Baltic Sea to come ashore at Åbo. And that is where we got up to last time. So let's have a look at how this expedition goes, shall we? Yes, let's do that. And first things first, this is sometimes known in Swedish as the Sturas Russian War, in case you're Googling whilst you're listening. And Swedish military intelligence has actually been pretty good this time, and they actually found out in advance of the Russian attack what was going to happen. So in addition to raising one soldier per five homes in Finland, Sten Sturra has sent a German commander with 500 mercenaries to V-Boy in advance of his main force that he was raising in Sweden, just to give them a little bit of a boost until he arrived. This meant that V-Boy has a noteworthily good level of defences. Instead of the usual hundred or so soldiers in a castle that we've seen before in some sieges, they've actually got a quite decent amount of men now. Nieland, closer to Orbu, sends 800 armed farmers to V-Boy, and the Bishop of Orbu sends 40 Svenna, which is a bit of a strange term, and it's a name for armed servants, administrators, and bailiffs of either the king, knights, bishops, or cities. So they're basically armed council workers, in a way, but they're sort of an official part of the military and the lowest level on the rank of the nobility. So these people would be expected to have some form of military training, or competence. They're sort of like the civil servant version of squires. 
All in all, this means the commander at Viborg, Knut Jönsson Posse, has an army of about 1,800 men. And he is an experienced commander. He was the one who defended Stockholm Castle against Christian in 1471 at the Battle of Brunkeberg and burnt the bridge that hindered the Danes' escape. The castle at Viborg itself is even in good condition and ready to face a siege. During the 1470s, a wall was built to protect the town around it as well, so there is a good level of defence here, as you would expect for the main castle on the Russian border. That has also been the home of many famous names in Swedish history recently. Mainly, it's where Karl Knutsson Bunde lived when he wasn't busy being king three times. The Russian advance on the city was anything but calm and simple. On the way up, four sukens, or parishes, are completely destroyed by the Russians. Knut Posse had originally decided to meet the Russian force in open battle, but once he goes and sees them, he scarpers back to Viboy. He won't be able to win that fight. He needs the walls to help him. And he sends a message over to Stensture to let him know the siege has begun. Yeah, because they knew the Russians were coming, but now he knows that it's actually started. The Russians then surround the town pretty quickly by land and sea on the 21st of September. And Knut Posse begins the defence on the walls by putting up all his soldiers to guard the walls as you normally would in a siege. But by the 12th of October, he isn't confident they're going to hold out for too long. So he decides to actually sally forth and go and meet the Russians outside of the city walls. So he sends 900 men on this attack led by a German commander. And about 800 of them are the poorly trained farmers raised from nearby, and 100 are these Svenna civil servant type folk. And this is about half the garrison Knut Possa has at his disposal, and can be seen as a bit of a questionable decision in that way. Why not send all or send none? The farmers could work well on the walls, actually. They are not necessarily the best people to fight on open battle, because defending, standing on the top of a wall, you don't really need much skill. All you need to do is chuck rocks and spears and stuff on the Russians as they climb up ladders or push siege machines towards the walls, and then just stab them when they try and climb over the wall. But fighting out on the ground in a real battle is a whole nother game. Like we saw at Brunke Bay, we were actually really impressed by the Swedish army because they were able to do complex maneuvers and things. But these farmers over in Finland haven't uh, had the opportunity to do that before, so it's a bit of a gamble. But either way, attack they do. Under the cover of night, they sail to the enemy lines a few kilometers away and manage to get there without being seen. However, by the time they start to form up on land, the Russians notice and order a quick counterattack. Presumably, Knut Posse wanted to get the men behind the Russians or flank them and attack them unexpectedly, but this didn't happen. Almost immediately, the farmers try to run back to the boats, and some start sinking under the weight of all the men panicking and crowding the boats. The Svenna try to get some order back in the peasants and start to fight back. It seems like they might be able to at least 
hold their own for a bit, but word spreads to the main Russian force and soon reinforcements arrive for the Russians. And it quickly becomes clear now that all is lost. And so the Swedish peasants who were fighting turn around and run back to the boats as fast as they can. And it ends up being a bit like the Titanic. A lot of them don't really wait for all the boats to fill up. They just leave as soon as they can. And the German commander of the Swedish forces only manages to escape by grabbing a rope that was trailing behind the very last boat that was leaving. Two other Swedish commanders are captured, and 90 of the 100 experienced Svenna are killed or captured, along with a, a few hundred farmers who were killed too in the panic. And this is a pretty devastating blow to Knut Posse. He's lost 90 of his best men and quite a fair chunk of his peasant soldiers, and the survivors and the men back in the city will have been demoralised by the whole debacle. And it also means that any chance of sallying out or breaking out now is, is lost. They, they don't have enough men to do another attempt like this anymore. So that means they're just going to have to defend the walls to the last man, or surrender, but that's not really an option. The Russians obviously smell blood, and just one day later, they attack the walls. They take heavy losses in this first attempt, as the Swedish defenders man the walls and fight bravely against the siege machines and Russian foot soldiers. The siege then becomes, like so many times before, a matter of endurance and patience. The Russians know they can probably afford to wait because of the time of year. This doesn't mean they won't be doing anything, though, as for the first time in a major engagement with the Swedes, they have proper artillery. And they put this to good effect and start d destroying some of the walls. They don't have overwhelming artillery firepower, though, but enough to start damaging the Swedish defences and eventually punch a way through. Yeah, or so they hope, because the siege then turns into a race. Knut Posse orders everyone in the city who can help to join repair and engineering parties. Everyone just has to wait near the walls, and when the Russians destroy or damage part of it, the citizens of the town would rush to repair it before more damage is done. And people are forming chains and carrying damaged brick and mortar back and forth and rushing equipment and tools around the walls to where they're needed most as the Russians bombard it from a distance. And you can just imagine the scene as old men, women, children and wounded soldiers all get involved in this team effort, racing to keep the walls standing in the face of the Russians pounding on their protective ring of stone. It's really dramatic, isn't it, to imagine? This is much more intense than a siege where the attackers just sit there and wait for the defenders to starve. This artillery bombardment goes on for six weeks or so, with occasional forays forward by the besiegers, until the 30th of November, when the Russians feel ready enough to commit to a full frontal assault on the walls. The reason for this is the same reason why Stan Sture is having problems getting over to Finland in the first place. The Russians are mainly supplied by boat, and the freezing waters are making this increasingly difficult. So they need to win now, or risk losing their supply lines behind them to the weather. And the Russian commanders can now see that eventually their artillery attack has been somewhat successful. They've destroyed or badly damaged three of the important towers on the wall, and some of the wall itself. 
And so the main attack is then decided to be sent in against the south of the wall, where uh, this is most damaged. And so they do that. They send in this main attack, which quickly meets heavy resistance. The Swedes then rush everyone who can fight to the walls. The fighting is really intense as soldiers stab, shoot and push their enemies as hard as they can. Some fall off the walls and the fighting is in the balance as defenders pour boiling oil and whatever they can on the Russians climbing the ladders they've rushed and pushed up against the wall. The Russian commanders keep sending men forward and eventually they manage to send people over the wall at a faster speed than the Swedes can kill them. They've just simply got too many men. The Russians then get possession of one of the towers that's still available and by now there's fighting all along the walls as siege towers have reached the top all around the city. So the Swedes are really in a desperate situation right now. Yeah, they are struggling to hold back the tide and soon it isn't just the walls that are under threat. Some Russian beachheads on the wall have enough time to pull up some of their ladders and turn them around so they can now climb down them the opposite direction and head into the city. Russian soldiers slowly start climbing down into the city itself and forming up and Knut Posse realizes that this is the make or break moment. He orders a ferocious counterattack and goes straight for the ladders on the inside of the walls where the Russians are climbing down into the city. They are quickly pulled down and the Russians who have made it down to ground level are now trapped with no hope of reinforcements. These are quickly put to the sword and Knut Posse can take a quick breath and try to salvage the rest of the defences. So whilst they've defeated this small force that's come down into the city, he looks around and sees that the Russians still have men all over the walls and are occupying this one tower, and they're using that vantage point to attack the defenders and direct the assault. The defenders don't have time to wait, and they know that doing nothing will surely now result in the loss of the city. There's too many Russians now all over the walls. So they come up with a rather desperate plan. They gather together stockpiles of tar and pitch and cover the insides of the walls and even part of the Russian tower with it, and then just set it on fire. The wood in the fortifications quickly catches fire and a thick smoke covers the walls and rises all up the tower captured by the Russians. So they're looking out and seeing as the flames are rising up the side of this tower whilst they're looking out and trying to direct the battle. That's pretty pretty scary. Yeah, and the Russians had a quick choice to make. Flee by jumping from the walls or tower or stand their ground and either choke on the smoke or be burnt alive. I mean, that really isn't much of a choice. So they jump down from the walls and tower in panic and flee. At one point, there might have even been an explosion of gunpowder in the tower, tearing it to pieces. So the Swedes are really like pulling their own castle down on them as a desperate last ditch attempt. Before long, the walls are empty of Russian soldiers. Uh, The fire is put out and Swedish soldiers once again take up their position on the walls. 
and the civilians rush back to their repair work after a seven-hour desperate battle which at multiple times seemed to be completely lost, the city had been saved. The Russians had committed so many men to the assault and suffered disastrous casualties that just a few days later, after tallying up their losses, they give up and leave. Wow, go Sweden, go the defenders of the city and go Knut Possa. This is amazing and he personally is part of another brilliant victory defending another city once again so he's defended the most important city in Finland and Stockholm now in his military career and this victory was so dramatic quite a few people have tried to figure out exactly how it was possible the Russians should have been able to win this and like with the Battle of Brunke Bay some have said that divine intervention was to blame or to be praised and St. Andreas helped them according to some who saw his sign in the skies and others believed it was the trusty saint olaf or saint eric who were lending a helping hand as always but the battle has since become famous or at least relatively famous for another explanation that we sort of touched on and that was the viborska smellen yeah the viboy explosion or the viboy bang this story says that knut posse actually rigged one of the castle's gunpowder magazines located in one of the towers rigged it to explode and then deliberately made sure that he placed weak defenses there. This would then encourage the Russians to focus on that area so then he could blow it up at a pivotal moment in the battle and take as many Russians with it as possible. Unfortunately, whilst that plan would be very cool and make Knut Posse an enormous military genius for thinking of it, there is no evidence that this actually happened. Other accounts have it that the Muscovites were so terrified by the explosion because they believed it to be the work of black magic. Indeed, Danish propaganda seized on the story of the Vibor Bang to claim that Posse must have been in league with the devil. Here's a quick quote about the whole thing, which says, Despite the fame of the V-Boy Bang, there's some doubt as to whether it actually occurred in the way described in the legend. Poster's letters reporting on his successful defence of V-Boy make no reference to such explosion, nor does the near-contemporary Stura Chronicle. So yeah, that's maybe a shame, but either way, Kruposa did win another spectacular victory for the Swedes and must have been very happy once the Russians headed home. We just have to, yeah, 50-50, decide personally if you believe the story of him blowing it up or setting fire to it or, you know, some sort of way of uh, sabotaging his own walls to take out the Russians. Uh, decide for yourself. And then in January the next year, so just a few weeks later, Stenstura leaves Finland almost as soon as he has arrived, and he actually does this to head back to get more men to do a counterattack. Svante Nilsson, who was a part of this expedition from Stenstura, meets up with Knut Posse, and they gather the remaining forces in Finland to go to Ivangorod and then Narva with 2,000 men and 70 ships, and they destroy the Russian forces there, which is sort of just south of of uh, Finland and they go back to Finland with treasure and nearly 300 prisoners so their mini counterattack was quite successful without any extra men Stan Stura might have been able to raise. Yeah in pretty much every way possible this campaign has been a success for 
for Sweden. They've defended their most important city in Finland and dealt Russia a bloody nose down in their own heartlands. Not bad for a campaign that looked like it was off to a pretty bad start. Later on in the year, in September 1496, Stensdöre returns, and this time he has 130 ships and probably thousands of men, many of them from Dalarna in the east of Sweden, with him on his expedition. This is the first time since the crusade that levies, i.e. regular farmer soldiers and not German mercenaries, etc., sail from Sweden to Finland specifically to fight. Yeah, because we've seen some of them don't even like going from, like, Upland and Stockholm down to Skorna. So uh, for them to go all the way across the sea over to Finland, which they still saw as Sweden at the time, but still, that whole trip is uh, very unusual for these types of soldiers to make. And like with many things you try for the first time, it doesn't go very well. The logistics and the supplies are terrible, and it's really hard to keep this large force supplied with the local resources that were available in a Finnish autumn and winter. The peasant soldiers sent over from Sweden quickly start to run out of food and water and supplies, and obviously start complaining too. Svante Nilsson, who's there with Sten Sturer again, gets annoyed and frustrated at the whole situation and actually goes home in anger because uh, he's already against Sten Sturer and this is just another reason why he uh, gets angry with him. This meant that any hope to salvage the situation of this new expedition was doomed to fail and eventually the whole Swedish expeditionary force is just disbanded and heads home in a catastrophic manner. It's really, really bad. Uh, not good. But luckily for the Swedes, Ivan III is having to deal with other problems as enemies in the south of his realm take this opportunity to attack his lands. A quick piece deal is therefore rushed through in Novgorod in 1497. And apart from a brief skirmish in 1499 and a few moments of drama here and there, this will be the last major conflict with the Russians for around half a century. Yeah, because nobody felt like continuing this war because everybody's made some sort of mistake and had big losses at some point and not least Stensturer now with this expedition. And Stensturer is worrying because despite overall victory, or at least not losing any land and territory to Russia, the Swedes don't really have much to show for this victory. Yes, they did win a stunning victory at V-Boy and then took a bit of war booty from down in Russia, but the Swedish counterattack was such an absolute disaster, it really affected morale and military standing in Sweden for a while. Stensturer has also spent a lot of time out of the country, or you know, out of Stockholm, dealing with this problem, and this gave time and reason for his domestic enemies to start plotting against him once again. This has been going on for a while, and over the past decade or so, we've seen how Stensturer has gradually started to annoy more and more people as he gets more and more power, money and wealth. We mentioned in the last episode how he had claimed more powers over the church by getting permission from the Pope to proclaim new bishops. He's also confiscated large amounts of land in Sörmland and kept it for himself instead of giving it to Uppsala Cathedral as he'd promised, and that makes the church very angry. 
He also takes land away from the nobility. He had strengthened his own military power, but at the expense of political support, when in 1493 he took Vesteros Castle away from Nils Busson, Svante Nilsson's dad. We've seen the castle be a bit of a flashpoint previously in various revolts, when power-hungry bailiffs had pushed the local peasants too hard, and Vesteros Castle has been the subject of sieges and battles between various factions within the Swedish nobility as well. We saw Svante Nilsson get angry at the dismal failure of the expedition in Finland, and he'd been angry at Stenstura for a while when that happened. Stenstura had taken over the estates of Svante Nilsson's deceased father, Nilstura, at Stekboy, in spite of protests and violent protests at that. The regent really does seem to be hoovering up any land he can find at this point, and domestic noble opposition to him increases, because yeah, he's just saying even to his top people in the council, he's just taking their family land when people die, which is a bit outrageous. And this revolt against him is led by Svante Nilsson, unsurprisingly, Arvid Troller, and the Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson, who we've mentioned a few times now. So these are really big hitters who are getting involved especially since Stenstura and the Archbishop have been at each other's throats for a while now. And as the Archbishop is the other central figure in governing Sweden, division between the two men would spell disaster for the whole management of the state. So when the council sees the expedition to Finland lurch from crisis to disaster and back to crisis again, this becomes the catalyst for the rebels to move against Stenstura. The drama reaches its peak in December 1496, when the regent is urged to step down from his post at a council meeting in Stockholm. Even burghers and merchants in the city have decided they want a change of management in Sweden. The situation was so hostile that Sten Stura needed to get a promise of safe passage from the mayor of Stockholm whenever he decided to leave the castle there, because yeah, just people are so angry they're going to throw things at him, basically. But also, Stensture has been regent for a long time now, 26 years to be precise. He isn't going to just give up without a fight. He refuses the demands of the rebelling councilman. He won't step down, but tries to buy time by asking for a meeting of the four estates the following summer to decide the question. But this is quite a desperate move, as the council is pretty serious this time. Someone who loves division in Sweden is always the king of Denmark, and Hans is no different from his predecessors in that respect. King Hans intervenes in this power struggle on the side of the archbishop and declares his support. No surprise there. Hans had been annoyed that his deals with the Russians had not led to any immediate ousting of Stensture, so he takes the decision to settle things with direct interference instead. He's been king of Denmark and Norway for 15 years now, and never been closer to becoming king of Sweden and thus all of the Kalmar Union. Yeah, Hans really sees the chance here and is really taking advantage of it. But Stenstura acts quickly too. He immediately hits back at the Archbishop Jakob Ulfsson, whose estates are burnt down by Stenstura, and his castle at Almerasterket is put under siege. And in return, the Archbishop gets Stenstura excommunicated, and Hans invades Sweden. Wow, what a quick turn of events there. With a quick roll of the dice from both sides, 
Sweden is basically back in civil war. Again. Yeah, it's dramatic. And I think we should take a moment to just recap a bit of that because Stensdura has put the Archbishop's castle under siege and burnt his estates down, which is it's not just a, a bit of a disagreement in the council. This is directly attacking a very important castle that the Archbishop owns. And it's something that we'll see return, the very same castle in almost exactly the same situation in a couple of episodes' time. So just remember that this was perhaps the first time where a region of Sweden and did something a bit stupid by attacking an archbishop. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, a really bad thing to happen. And because it is so serious, Hans is taking things seriously too. Every tenth farmer down in Denmark was conscripted into his army, and there are many German mercenaries that he's paid for, including some led by a man called Thomas Slenscht, who is a German from a family who specialises in putting down rebellions. And you can imagine the scene in the castle when Hans finds out that Stensturer has another well-trained peasant army from Dalarna on his side. We're no match for him, Thomas. It's another Swedish peasant army. And then Thomas goes, King Hans, peasant rebellions are my speciality. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it goes to show what Northern Europe must have been like at the time if there is an entire German mercenary soldier family that just specializes in putting down rebellions. That was a uh, subtle reference to uh, Star Wars Episode 3 there too. It's like, Sith Lords are our speciality. Peasant revolts are our speciality. Exactly. So the Danish troops go by boat to Skåne and then take Elvsborg on the west coast, which was supposed to get reinforcements, but they arrived a day too late. They then take Kalmar, Stegeborg and Borgholm, after which King Hans sails up to Stockholm. He then builds fortifications on Brunkeberg Hill, just like he did in 1471, and he has troops around Clara Abbey there too, so it's just like last time. Yeah, although it wasn't Hans last time, it was Christian last time. Good point. Got my Danish kings confused there for a little bit. But still, yeah, it's exactly the same apart from it's a different Danish king. He's like, I can do this better than my dad, like how hard can it be? And so Stensturer goes to Stockholm and he waits for his peasant forces from Dalarna there um, and he waits for them to meet him in the city. He wants to do basically exactly the same as that happened in 1471 and defeat the Danes in the same way. So the Danes want to try the attack the same way and Stensturer wants to defend the same way. But apparently he writes a letter to the troops coming from Dalarna but this gets intercepted by the Danes and they learn of his plans. So with this new information, the Danes send Thomas Slens out to the north to intercept the Swedish army at a place called Rutebro. It's about 20 kilometers northwest of Stockholm there. There's a decisive battle here at the end of September, and the Danes win with the Swedish forces retreating all the way back to Dalarna. Um, unfortunately, we don't really have too much information on it, but they win, basically. The Danes win. However, on their way back, the Danes do something pretty sneaky. The Danes carry the colours and banners from Dalarna at the front. So when they're approaching Stockholm, Stensture thinks that his allies have won when he sees the force approach the city and climb the Brunkeberg Hill. So he naturally gives the order to attack from the castle with all his garrison, thinking it's going to work just like last time. But of course, it is a deception and it all goes immediately wrong. The Swedes get surrounded and destroyed by the superior Danish force. 
Stansdorer manages to escape the massacre, but only just. He has to get his horse to swim over the water back to the castle whilst carrying him on its back. Yeah, wow, that's a really dramatic last-minute escape there. But looking back, this might not have been a complete knockout blow militarily, because, yeah, Sten has lost a lot of men and the Dalarna force had to retreat. But Stensterer still holds the castle, and as always, the Danish army is costing a lot of money, and Hans needs to win quickly. Just the knights cost 15,000 yillen a month, and the siege of Stockholm over winter is not going to be a realistic plan for him. It's going to cost too much money and it's going to be too difficult to supply it, just like the Russians had problems with at V-Boy. Whilst the forces from Dalarna had been defeated in that one battle at Rutabru, they're not out of the fight forever. Eventually they're going to regroup and attack again to help Stenstura. But the problem for Stenstura is he's lost all support politically. The whole council is now against him and many of the major castles are in Danish hands and the Norwegians have even got involved and sent some troops over too. So he's just sitting there in the castle realising all his friends have left him and there's not really any chance for him, even if he wins a battle, to be able to rule Sweden afterwards. Now, this all means that they have to negotiate. There is a quick solution. On the 6th of October, it is agreed that Hans becomes king of Sweden, and Stan Sture gets a load of money and an amnesty for him and his men. With Hans becoming king, Stan Sture obviously lost the job of regent, because you can't really have a king and a regent at the same time. Stan Sture, though, is not just given money and amnesty, he's also given a lot of land in Finland, so he can basically head out there and rule his own little mini-nation within the kingdom. And so the Kalmar Union has a king with all three crowns again, after a period where Stan Sture looked to be relatively safe in his position. Where did it all go wrong for Stan? Well, he did start off rather cleverly, like we said. He used carrots and sticks to keep the peasants from rebellion, and he was very careful not to raise taxes. But at the same time, he made sure to put down local uprisings brutally and fast. Uh, there were quite a few little small ones that we didn't really bother talking about because they just it was just a line. It's like, and Stenstura went to this town and put down a rebellion. But they weren't really major ones. It was just local people getting a bit angry. But the main thing was that he was a master of propaganda, as we saw him pushing forward a nationalistic narrative of Sweden versus Denmark, especially after the, and before, the Battle of Brunke Bay, which this meant he could always rely on the support of the peasants in important areas of the country like Dalarna in general. But it was the council that was always going to be, in the end, a make-or-break body in Stansturer's reign. He did do his best to try and balance the powers and ambitions of the dozen or so noble major families in Sweden. After all, he knew that as a regent, he would only keep power as long, really, as the Swedish nobility thought it was better to have a Swedish regent than a Danish king come in and fully restore the Kalmar Union. So whilst it started off well, we saw how at the end his land confiscations really turned the council against him. 
he really used the power of his office to claim as much land and money for himself as possible. Potentially up to 300 farms were taken into his personal control. And this obviously angered the nobility. Seasdure was becoming too powerful and this was creating domestic problems. Plus, he was annoying the church and the archbishop. So he really spelt his own downfall there in many ways. And that is it. Hans is declared king in October, and at the end of November, there is the formal election of him. Interestingly, this time it takes place not at Murastenar, and coronation a day later doesn't take place in Uppsala, but instead they both take place in Stockholm. We know that Hans didn't really care about all the pomp and ceremony of being king down in Denmark, so maybe he didn't like these things, but maybe he just didn't have time to travel around Sweden and engage in all these uh, traditions and ceremonies. He just wanted to make sure that he got the crown on the head and his seat on the throne as soon as possible. Strike while the iron's hot, so to say. Yeah, and maybe he wanted to avoid some awkward questions because the nobility had risen up and supported Hans in the hope that he would help them personally after they got rid of Stenstura. They wanted land and power again, but Hans had let Stenstura keep his head and keep a lot of land. So Hans was saying he wanted to keep Stenstura as an important figure in Swedish politics after all. Yeah, I mean, this is a gamble for Hans, but if you're not going to kill Steinsture, maybe it is better to keep him happy with land and power instead of forcing him to run off to Dalarna and raise an army again and keep fighting. But by keeping Steinsture happy, though, you're annoying the nobility. But again, this is maybe what Hans wants, to not have the entire council and Stensture united against his reign. We've seen before how Hans likes this divide-and-conquer mentality, keeping people within the council opposed to each other. That's how he ruled in Norway and Denmark. We'll have to wait to the next episode to see exactly how Hans's reign over Sweden works out, because we've probably had enough political intrigue for one day now. Yeah, probably time to round this one off. We've seen a giant epic siege and defeat of a Russian army in the east, but that wasn't enough to save Stenstura politically, who's now just been removed from the office of regent, but not removed from the grand play that is Swedish politics in the 1400s. And Hans is finally king of Sweden. It took 14 years between the Kalmar recess in 1483, where they said he'd be king, and him to actually be crowned in 1497. But I guess good things come to those who wait. We'll be sure to continue the story next time around when we see how it all fits together with uh, angry and deposed Sensura, an angry and not powerful council, and King Hans willing to just get on with ruling the whole Kalmar Union. This really is an uneasy fit for all of them. I don't see stability lying ahead, really. Well, we'll see. Maybe it's a new golden age like King Chris. You keep coming back to your namesake, King Chris. I can't help that he's the best king that's ever existed in the Kalmar Union. That's not saying much. They were all pretty rubbish. Most of them didn't even manage to actually become king. It's like, what's your favourite terminal disease? 
Anyway, once again, hope you all have a great 2024 if you're listening to this as we release it. You can always get in touch with us either on email or via our social media or visit our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Yep, send us uh, an email if you like, uh, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. With that, we just say, yeah, goodbye 2023 and hello 2024 and the fifth year of podcasting for us. Exciting times. Yep, bye for now. Hey, do.